Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Everkitinos. And we're picking up with our study. Let me just check here. I want to make sure the number correct. Number 32, hypothesis 32. And we've been looking at the practice of asceticism itself. And we're coming to the end of this hypothesis, which has been emphasizing for us the importance of not neglecting the ascetical life once one has taken up the role and certainly for the monk once they have donned the monastic habit that to, to fall away from those practices not only becomes an impediment for themselves but it becomes a source of scandal for others that to simply live the life in externals only does not bear any fruit and so uh we're including things here tonight with one of the, the great writers, St. Ephraim the Syrian. Uh, again, for those who just joined, we're on page 279, letter J from St. Ephraim the Syrian. Brethren, we can measure the time that we have passed in the monastic life. But if we are not aware of the negligence we have exhibited during this span of time, we are becoming conceited. Praise for a man is not just based on the length of time he has spent in asceticism, but on the progress he has made according to God. And by this is meant not the whiteness of one's hair, but the attainment of a virtuous life. There's always an eloquence of St. Ephraim the Syrian and the way that, that he writes. And uh, he captures here something important for us that... Uh, the ascetic can't simply look at his years within the monastic life. And I think this is true for uh, anyone in any vocation in terms of our pursuit of life in Christ, that uh, simply years of being a Christian or years of embracing the spiritual life is not enough. And one has to be progressing in the ascetical life and producing the fruit of repentance, if you will. And so, grow, so growing in virtue. And uh, not too long ago, I read a work from Michael Casey. I mentioned him once before. He's an Australian Trappist and uh, has written really some wonderful books. But he wrote one book called Strangers to the City. And he says here within, within the book that, uh, that monks in a monastery must... Uh, uh, every year grow in their zeal and practice of the ascetic life. And what he means by this is not multiplying the practices or becoming uh, more sort of kind of strident in one's practice of fasting, for example, but uh, rather that one seeks to do it with greater and greater love and with a clarity of focus upon Christ and the struggle for virtue and the struggle to overcome vice. And, uh, and so St. Ephraim is telling us the same thing here, that the passing of time uh, is not enough to show that we are growing in the Christian life or that we have uh, a kind of wisdom uh, from the practice because we can grow negligent. So in the spiritual life, we always have to have an eye upon the ways that we fall short of living the gospel fully. And this is why we do, and why it's often suggested that we do an examination of conscience on a daily basis, that at the end of the day, that we look at our life and see whether or not we've really lived in accord with 
the teachings of the gospel, that we've loved God and loved others and uh, sought to avoid sin in our life. And we want to get into a regular practice of doing this uh, so that we don't become conceited, as St. Ephraim tells us here, uh, that we don't embrace the illusion that simply time uh, and a kind of consistency alone in certain practices is what makes one holy or virtuous. That there really has to be this, this growth in the love of God and the perfecting of virtue. And we've often mentioned here that desire is such an important part of the spiritual life, the desire uh, for Christ, and that we take up all these things, not for ourselves or with a self-focus, but uh, in a way that, lead us, that leads us more deeply into that relationship with him. He goes on to write, be sure, O monk, that you obtain the eternal life to which you were called, and for the sake of which you made a good confession before all creation on high and below. Be patient for a little season, and he will surely come and will not tarry. What is a monk, or what is he like? So don't lose sight of eternal life, and uh, certainly don't lose sight of the brevity of our, our time within this world that God will not tarry in coming to us. And, uh, you know, there are times in our life where we lose sight of this, uh, the brevity of our life and sort of the urgency within the moment of responding as fully as we can to the grace of God and responding in the moment with love, that we don't let those moments slip us by. And we can easily become absorbed in the task of the day and, and lose sight of God altogether. And so what St. Ephraim is saying here is, you know, what is a monk and what is it like? You know, is it simply living in community? Is it simply embracing these practices or is it something much deeper? He writes, the monk is like a man who falls from a height, but falling finds a rope hanging from a beam, seizing it, he hangs on to it and thereafter cries unceasingly to the Lord to help him, since he knows that if he grows weary and lets his two hands slacken their grip, he will fall and be killed. And so a monk is one who has come to the realization that we are saved by grace alone and that we are saved by the, the mercy of God and that we take hold of this with a firm grip and mostly uh, through our unceasing prayer of calling out to him for his mercy and for his help. And we hear this from the fathers repeatedly about crying out, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, or simply Jesus have mercy on me, that we don't uh, lose hold of the one who can save us. And the moment that we let our group uh, grip loosen and we begin to maybe reach out for other things is where we fall into great danger in the spiritual life. Beloved brethren, since we wear the angelic schema, let us not fight on the devil's side, but let us aspire as far as possible to the life of the angels. For the habit must be accompanied by a way of life and by deeds. Without deeds, the schema 
is of no value. Do the angels perchance dwell in heaven amidst quarreling and jealousy, as we see happening nowadays among the monks? And so, you know, to live the angelic life, St. Ephraim isn't losing sight of our humanity and our basic needs, but rather in terms of the virtue that we seek and also the vigilance that we maintain throughout our life. The angels are, have their focus constantly upon the Lord and uh, seeking to do his will. And so a monk is to be uh, equally vigilant in every way, in prayer, but also in, in doing good deeds. And so Ephraim asks quite simply, you know, is there quarreling among the angels? Do they fight with each other and, you know, have uh, bitter conversations or are they focused upon God? You know, do they become so fixated or on things or possessive of them or of their own opinion and judgment that it leads them to argue with each other and enter into bitter dispute? And I think in our own day, we can see how easily we move along that path. If somebody says something to us, you know, a little harsh or they're irritable on a particular day, anxious on a day, they say something that uh, is stinging and we can lose sight of, of Christ in that moment because we move to a defensive position. And so we can begin to quarrel either with individual or within our own minds uh, about things. And so what's true for the monk is true for us as well, that we, we have to give great care to how it is that we're acting on a day-to-day -day basis and how we're relating with each other. Otherwise, all, all the appearances of the monastic life or the Christian life as a whole uh, comes to naught. It means nothing unless it's true in the eyes of God. Let us make sure, brethren, that we do not become an impediment and a scandal to those in the world. Let the good schema not be blasphemed because of us, but let it rather be praised. What defense will we make before the Lord at the fearful hour of judgment if we are so careless about our salvation? What should God have done for us that he has not done? Have we not seen God, the word himself, humbled in the form of a servant, that we ourselves might become humble? And have we not seen his ineffable face spat upon, that we might not get angry when we are insulted or when we are rebuked? Have we not seen his holy back scourged, that we might be obedient in all things before our abbots and the other monks? Have we not seen his face, which makes the earth tremble when he looks upon it, slapped, that we might endure whatever we are, whenever we are attacked and not become like wild beasts? Did we perhaps not hear him say, I do nothing of myself, and again, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me, that we might not be impudent and self-willed? Did we perhaps not hear him say, I did not disobey nor gainsay, and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And again, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And further saying many similar things, that we might strive to be like this. 
It is impossible for us to prosper and to be saved in any other way than by imitating Christ in all things. I beseech you, my brethren, the chosen flock of Christ, let us be vigilant while we have the time, and let us conduct ourselves in conformity with the habit that we wear, so that hereafter we might receive the honor of the angels. So again, you know, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, Ephraim is one of the most beautiful writers from the ascetic tradition. And here puts before our eyes Christ as the model and the standard for us. It's the standard is not set by our own judgment, our own reasoning about things, but what has been put before us from the incarnation on and through all the teachings of Christ, that this is where we see, and this is here where we hear about how we are to live and to love. And so to embrace the monastic habit or to embrace the great role of the schema uh, of these monks who have, you know, taken this deep vow of prayer and to pursue it unceasingly as well as the life of virtue. Uh, do we not all do we not make a mockery of that or become an impediment in the world by turning away from what has been set up before us as the standard? And so when we think about asceticism and the universal call to holiness, it is always Christ that we must look to first. And when we're thinking about our ascetical practices within the life of the world, whatever our station, we look to him and we listen for his word. Uh, come follow me. Uh, the words spoken to the apostles or the words that he speaks to us. And we are to listen deeply and allow him to draw us forward along the particular path that he desires for us. And I don't have in mind a specific vocation, except the vocation, the universal call to holiness that comes through our baptism that we've been united to Christ. And so we are to strive by the grace and the life that has been given to us to conform ourselves in every way to him, to love as he loves. This is the role that we all are called to embrace. So whether monastic or not, it, it doesn't matter that this universal call to holiness is the most important thing. You know, it's over the course of the ages, the demarcation between uh, religious priest laity has broken down. I think this sense of what it is that has been opened up for us uh, by virtue of our baptism, this uh, participation in the priesthood of Christ and that universal call to holiness. And so, you know, what we see arise within the monastic life, you know, the movement from this martyrdom of blood that we see in the early Christians to this internal martyrdom, this dying to self and to sin, to live for Christ fully, is really the model for us all, whatever our station in life, that we are to give ourselves over and our hearts over fully to Christ. And, uh, I think when we uh, so uh, firmly and fixedly, you know, 
break down these particular stations in life, as I said, priesthood, religious laity, I think it, it blurs this clarity for us, this clear picture of the, the call to conform ourselves to Christ, to be Christ in the world, to become living theology, and to live ourselves in such a way that it is Christ who prays within us, is Christ who fasts within us, it is Christ who suffers within us. And so nothing is done sort of in this individualistic fashion, but always in union and communion with Christ. And if all that we are doing and taking upon ourselves does not lead to that communion, it does not bear fruit for us. That our reception of the Holy Eucharist at the altar is to draw us more deeply into that communion in order that we might be transformed even more fully, that we might uh, bear witness to him in the world, that we might become what we receive. Uh, but if what we're doing uh, does not take hold of that grace in such a way, but is turned back in on ourselves or leads us, as St. Ephraim said earlier in this section, to become conceited, then it again produces no no fruit or any fruit that is pleasing in the eyes of God. I think it's always much easier for us to form an image in our own mind of what it is to be a Christian or what virtue is, what it means to love and what it means to pray. And, you know, there, I think in our own minds, if we're honest, there always is this line that we draw you know, when it comes to enduring the cross or loving as Christ loves, that we, we will set uh, the limits there rather than allowing him to guide and direct us. Uh, someone has their hand up here and there's no name. So if you want to go ahead and put up your question. It's number 1916. Or do you have your hand up by accident? You have to unmute yourself. Well, if it's me, Father, um, and no. it's by accident. And I have no, no idea what I'm doing over here. No, no, it's somebody else. It's not you. So uh, we'll, we'll just wait. And uh, if uh, they get theirs, uh, their microphone working, we'll come back to him. So that brings us to the end of this little section from St. Ephraim the Syrian, as well as the end of the hypothesis. And anyone have any comments or questions about what we've read, what we've read to this point? Okay. So hypothesis 33, uh, the writers and the compiler of the Evergetinos turns his attention now to uh, the importance of a spiritual elder and living uh, a life in obedience, allowing ourselves to be guided in the spiritual life rather than self-guiding and trusting in the wisdom, again, of those who have an experiential knowledge of the spiritual life. And we've already looked upon this in, in great detail earlier on in the Evergetinos about the importance of not indiscriminately uh, placing ourselves under obedience to uh, someone who has not shown themselves to offer wise counsel or has not led a holy life. 
that it can be a dangerous thing to do so, that bad spiritual directors from the very beginning have done people great harm. And so we want to have discern, uh, discernment in this regard and be uh, uh, discriminating and who we would do this with. But here, uh, certainly the author is speaking to, to monks who are to live in obedience to not only the abbot, but to their spiritual elder who guides them and to embrace what he suggests uh, with, uh, uh, with great desire, but also with this sense that even if it is arduous and causes us some distress, that it doesn't seem to fit with our sensibilities or our understanding of things. And this is always an interesting thing because we're given such stories here, of course, that uh, take us to the sort of the extreme end of it. And uh, it, it can be jarring, but again, they show us something very important that sometimes these elders ask their uh, disciples to do things in obedience that really does not seem in accord with reason to be of any benefit. And I'll just give a little quick example, and we'll read it later on. Uh, Abba John the Short is un, under an elder, and he's just told, you know, go, go out and stick this stick in the ground, and then every day water it. And it's some distance from the monastery. I don't know if you've read ahead, but, you know, to be able to water it on a daily basis meant that one would have to leave early in the evening in order to get back to the monastery by the morning. And so, but every day, Abba John the Short goes out and waters this, and I think it's for like a year or two, I'll have to wait till we get to it. And eventually it produces fruit, is some sort of nut that it produces. And the elder then takes the fruit of this stick that produced, you know, uh, this abundant fruit back to the monastery and says, you know, behold the fruit of obedience that he's asked to do something in faith that many people might say, forget it. And yet uh, this perfect obedience is, produces something that is beautiful in the eyes, certainly uh, of those who read it, but of all the whole monastery, you know, sit in awe of, of the fact uh, that, that this takes place. So we begin uh, this evening uh, on, with letter A from St. Gregory the, the Diologist, or otherwise known as St. Gregory the Great, uh, early Pope. One day, the successor of St. Honoratus, the abbot of the monastery, was overcome by such great anger against Libertinus, who was beloved of God, that he came to the point of striking him with his fist. And when he did not find a stick to lash him with, he picked up a stole and smote him on the head and on the face with it so forcibly that he made them both black and blue. I'm sorry, he made them both black and blue and swollen. After this violent beating, Libertinus went off to his bed where he remained in silence. In the meantime, he had been assigned some task at the monastery for the following day. After the morning service was over, Libertinus went to the abbot's cell and in all humility asked for his blessing. 
The abbot, though he knew how much Libertinus was honored and loved by all for his exceeding virtue, thought that he wanted to leave the monastery on account of his attack on him. He therefore asked him where he was going to go. Father, replied Libertinus calmly, I have been assigned a task at the monastery, which I cannot abandon, because yesterday I resolved to stay here. The abbot realized that he had behaved harshly to Libertinus, and he also saw the monk's humility and meekness. He groaned within his heart and rose from his bed, fell at his, the feet of his disciple, held on to them reverently, and confessed that he had sinned by daring to cause such severe pain to so excellent a man. In reaction, Libertinus fell to the ground before the abbot's feet, maintaining that what had happened was not due to him, that is the abbot, but to his own sin. He considered himself responsible and declared that what he had suffered was worthy of his heirs. In the wake of this incident, the abbot acquired great meekness and the humility of the disciple became a guide to virtue for the teacher. After he had been given permission, Libertinus went to carry out his assignment. Then many of those who knew him, kind and venerable men, on seeing his face blackened and swollen, asked him what had happened. Yesterday evening, he replied, because of my sins, I stumbled over a stool and suffered what you see. In this way, that righteous man neither revealed the abbot's anger nor fell into the sin of lying. Such, I believe, is the power of patience. Peter, uh, I'm sorry, he's speaking to Peter. Uh, such, I believe, is the power of patience, Peter, that it is much greater than the miracle and signs that this great man, Libertinus, wrought. So, uh, you know, a hard thing to read. Uh, but the last sentence, I think, draws things into perspective for us on some level, that the, the power of this patience, even in the face of abuse of his elder, and even when the elder repents and embraces his feet, he does not expose him to the uh, anger of the other monks. He does not expose the sin of the abbot. And uh, it's rather his, his patience here uh, that is the most powerful thing, more powerful than the miracles that eventually this saint would, would work. And we've often talked in the past, and we've heard it referred to in regards to those who imitate Christ in his obedience as confessors of the faith that they bear witness to what was central to uh, Christ's witness uh, in going to the cross, that he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on the cross. And that those who imitate Christ in this fashion, uh, what they do has greater power to bear fruit within their own life and in the life of others. And, you know, and certainly in reading this, it, uh, it goes against our own sensibilities. And, you know, there's an abuse there that takes place and a very violent one. And uh, 
uh, I think it's only an individual in a particular kind of setting that might be able to embrace this. And so, you know, I certainly wouldn't want us to uh, become accepting of physical abuse. You know, we know what a danger that can be. But I think what the point, the greater point that is being put forward here is that there was heroic patience shown, even in the face of this. And the desire to protect the reputation of another, despite the fact uh, that he had been treated in such a way. And the real belief in humility uh, that his own errors, his own sin, was the cause of this. Uh, and so we're told here that he was able to say these things without lying, that you know he could see in the, his humility and obedience the poverty of his own sin. You know, the multiple times throughout the, the day that he sinned, even in his perfection, Externally, he was a holy man, but in his mind and in his heart, he knew his own sin and the distance uh, that existed between his love and the love of Christ in terms of conformity there. And in the scriptures we hear, you know, even the righteous man sins seven times a day, that is perfectly. And uh, so we, we don't see everything uh, about what's going on in our hearts. And the saints typically do. You know, they see their own poverty and their own sin with a great clarity. And so that clarity prevents them from judging others, even when they see them fall into sin or when they are, in a sense, the victim of that sin that is directed toward them. And in our day-to-day -day life, I think this becomes something important for us to remember that you know we witness a lot of things in our life and there might be those who who don't hit us over the head with a stole and bruise and bloody us but they might do so with their words or other actions and how we bear that uh, is important that we're called to bear that with the patience of Christ and the humility of Christ himself. And going back to the previous hypothesis, you know, I think when we read through Ephraim's description of the life of Christ, how could it be otherwise? You know, when Christ humbles himself in the incarnation, when he's, his you know, all holy face is slapped, when he's spat upon, uh, you know, when he's lashed and, you know, then pinned to the cross, you know, how can our seeking to be patient uh, be uh, limited without feeling the sting of that? From the life of St. Pacomius, Pacomius is an interesting figure. You don't hear his name mentioned a lot, but he's so important within the Christian tradition, because he's the first really to write a rule for those who live the common life. Uh, so those who live in the synovium under an abbot, that his is one of the first rules for those living this kind of life. When Pacomius the Great was still a young man and a disciple of St. Palamon, 
He did obedience to his teacher eagerly and without contradicting him, following him with humility of heart and all of his incomparable and admirable acts of austerity. Apart from other hardships to which he willingly submitted, he was often sent to a hill to gather wood. Since he used to walk barefoot, the thorns would pierce his feet like nails. And he endured this ordeal with joy, remembering the nails with which they affixed our Savior's hands and feet to the cross. And so we, we see here a little bit of a pattern developing of referring all things back to Christ. And so, you know, while we might not be called uh, to this level of asceticism, and, you know, certainly walking upon thorns. What we see Pacomius doing here is that in his own trials, drawing his mind and his heart back to the trials of Christ. And if we were to take hold of something here from this story, it, I think it would be that, that in our day-to-day -day trials, the crosses that we bear, our hearts turn first to Christ. And that our deepest consolation is to be found in the cross itself. And it seems counterintuitive that in our suffering, that we would find in the sufferings of Christ, the deepest and truest of consolations. That we often reach out to the things of this world to lift us out of those particular sufferings. Where we find in the saints, they're turning to Christ and referring themselves back to him and finding this consolation that they are being conformed to Christ and being united to Christ in the cross. That that brings the deepest consolation, the deepest kind of grace that a person could receive within this world. And again, this requires a kind of depth of faith uh, to believe that our communion with the Lord is so deep and so real uh, that we've been made one with him uh, through our baptism and through our reception of the Holy Eucharist, that our sufferings are, are never our own. That again, the, we're never, we never experience them in isolation, but always in union and communion with Christ and in union and communion with the redemptive work of the cross itself. And so when we think of redemptive suffering, we, we think of it not only in terms of the purification that suffering often brings to us in the sense of freeing us from pride or, or arrogance or self-will, but this redemptive suffering as being a, a participation in, in the redemptive work of Christ himself, in, in the redemptive work of the cross that this is the intimacy that we are called to, that we enter through our reception of Holy Communion, we are entering into the Paschal mystery, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. And, uh, and so it's, the Eucharist should be our greatest source of joy and also be our source of joy when we experience the cross in our day-to-day -day life. Any comments or questions so far? Okay. Letter C, from the life of St. Anthony. 
This venerable Father Anthony came to the monastic life after previously being a dignitary and dedicating himself for many years, all on his own and in silence, to the severest struggles. He was once reading the divine ladder of the virtues when he noticed at the end of a discourse concerning obedience, which is spoken of by the teacher, if a man spends his life in ascetical quietude and recognizing his infirmity, hastens to sell himself as a slave in obedience to an elder, whereas he was before blind, he now suddenly beholds Christ without effort. He continually turned the sentence over in his mind, trying, say, I'm sorry, saying to himself, after so many toils and ascetical struggles, am I still blind? How long must I wait to behold Christ? Under the influence of these thoughts, he abandoned his solitary hut and eremitical life and entered the arena of Cenobitic monasticism. So, interesting. You know, that the fathers often hold up for us the importance of solitude, of silence. And uh, we hear so many stories of the anchoretic life, but when we read the history of the monastic life, it is the cenobitic life that uh, is held up at, in greater esteem in the sense that it is most formative uh, in living in obedience that if one is called to the eremitic life, it's typically after having been formed after many years of living in obedience to an elder. And so this particular St. Anthony is, is wondering, you know, I've lived this great life of discipline and solitude, and yet there's something lacking within me. Am I, am I still blind to this greater truth that comes only through living in conformity to the obedience of Christ. And so he decides to enter into the monastery in order that he might be able to live this kind of life. He went to a renowned Cenobium in the vicinity of Chios in Bithynia, now in Western Turkey, and stayed in a monastery's guest house like one of the poor without saying anything to anyone. But since he was fed daily for free, along with the paupers, he became distressed for he, had, he could not abide eating bread at no charge. So he went up to the neighboring hill, gathered firewood, carried it back on his shoulders and deposited it, in, it next to the entrance of the monastery. The monk whose duty it was to look after guests saw this deed and said to him, Abba, what are you doing? The monastery has no need for you to work. All who can't come here are fed for free and give thanks to God. I know this, replied Anthony, but since I do not like remaining idle, I am doing this on my own to get some relaxation. When Anthony persisted in doing this favor voluntarily, the great the guest master, without saying anything, referred the matter to the abbot. At that time, the abbot was the famous Ignatius, who had built the monastery with the Lord's help. The abbot listened to the guest master and said to him, ask him what he is looking for and why he is waiting patiently outside the monastery. When the guest master had conveyed the abbot's question to Anthony, the latter responded, I'm not from here. I'm a foreigner, and I wish with God's help to live with you 
so that I might be of service to you. As soon as the abbot had been informed of this reply, he ordered Anthony to come to see him. When he saw Anthony, he immediately recognized who he was, for he knew of his virtuous life by hearsay. And he said to him, Abba, what troubled you so much that you came to us? I came to become like you in virtue, replied Abba Anthony, since up to now I have been lagging behind you in this regard. It is not possible for you now to become a disciple, since you have lived for so many years on your own with God. For many, the abbot continued, who have deprived themselves by their own will, have succeeded in acquiring whichever of the other virtues they've set out to acquire, such as continence, fasting, poverty, and bodily hardship. However, they prove to be mediocre, even in what they seem to be, to be good at, when they were tested by the standard of Cenobitic monasticism, since they lacked humility. This, Father, is precisely what I learned from the divinely inspired teaching of the fathers, namely that I have not yet succeeded in crossing over the threshold of virtue as a hermit. And I've come here and delivered myself into spiritual servitude so that with your help as Christ wills, I may begin a life that is guided by you. So an extraordinary thing and even acknowledged as extraordinary by the abbot having known who this particular Anthony was and the lifestyle that he lived, that it was no uh, uh, life that was lacking in its rigor, asceticism, and depth of prayer. And yet this Anthony understands something important that comes from the wisdom of the fathers that are holding on to our own will uh, can infect the spiritual life. Even what we're doing, we're, what we're doing, is good on the surface, and maybe even good in a very deep way. But even our virtue has to be perfected by the grace of God. And this Anthony sees that the virtue of obedience within him is lacking, and the most concrete way of addressing this is to put himself, as it were, as we are told, in servitude to this monastery so that he could precisely let go of his own will. This father is precisely, I'm sorry, after this confession, Anthony was accepted into the monastery and was instructed by the abbot to make caring for the church his priority. This is something that most men avoid as being burdensome and arduous. After he had remained in this duty for a sufficient time and not being satiated by the hardship that resulted from this obedience, he approached the abbot one day and said, Father, I came here in order to labor more, but the duty that you have assigned me is too light for me. As soon as he heard this, the abbot handed him over to the monk in charge of looking after the vineyards so that he might prune them together with the rest of the brothers. But since he was completely inexperienced in this work, he kept injuring his fingers. And for this reason, he was distressed by this obedience. Nonetheless, he endured the hardship throughout the duration of the pruning. But when the time came for plowing the vineyards, again, he had great difficulty with digging. Finally, when the grapes had ripened, they gave him the task of protecting them. So 
we were this is an interesting little story because we see things are progressing in in fulfilling what he desires which is to be perfected by obedience and he willingly as we see from the very beginning uh takes upon himself the task of the the guest master the abbot and now he's placed under the brothers and working in the vineyard and things are becoming more difficult that his fulfillment of that obedience is not as easy as it was when he first came there because he doesn't know how to do the work and so he's wrecking his hands they're you know becoming bloodied and scarred from doing the work of pruning in the vineyard some of the brothers either because they were rather careless or perhaps in order to test him came to the vineyard and asked if they could cut off some grapes abba anthony told them forgive me my brothers but i do not have any such instructions look there are branches in front of you and if you wish cut them on your own but in any case if you take them i must report this to the abbot indeed abba anthony like the others used to confess his thoughts daily to the abbot as soon as they heard this the brothers departed empty-handed so we see another level of his obedience that he's not easily moved away from the fundamentals of the role but also of obedience and obedience to the truth that uh as we hear there was this practice of revealing one's thoughts to one spiritual elder at that time or in this case in the monastery to one's abbot uh in order to that the abbot might know what's going on within the heart and i in order to be able to pro provide some healing balm and so he shows in this instance that he's he's scrupulous in his fidelity to this obedience and to the rule but there's another test of this obedience coming up in the meantime he conversed with himself in more or less the following way while sitting in his cell at midday and picking lice from his clothing he said to himself in response to his thoughts when i was keeping silence alone in the desert you said to me you derive no benefit from all the hardship you endure and you determined that my ascetic seclusion was of no value now that you have brought me here you seem to reckon the toils of that solitary life to be happy since you want to tear me away from the cenobitic life of the brethren he entertained these thoughts many times with pain of heart and talked tearfully to himself one of the spiritual elders often noticed this going on and he consoled him with warm words of love in this way anthony bore with such such temptations so as to enjoy the good things to come so he begins to be tested internally uh that the obedience that he's called to is not simply in terms of his physical duties but the obedience is meant to transform his heart on the deepest possible level and he finds himself being tested here by his own thoughts my goodness you know i you I, you led this life in seclusion and it was holy and good and here you find yourself in a monastery but you're a physical and mental wreck because you're struggling to perform the duties of the monastery and so you know when i read through this i thought goodness it's a beautiful story because it's showing us that 
the perfecting of a virtue is not what we might imagine and that it lies within the hands of God and the action of his grace. And it might take place when we think we are really doing poorly in the spiritual life or that we've made the wrong decisions in terms of the path that we've taken or feel that we've been called, called upon. And this is exactly what happens to him. After the grape harvest had passed, he was assigned to serving in the refectory. There he had even more difficulty because until nearly the third hour of the night, he was occupied with receiving and looking after the brothers as they came in and went out. They frequently showered him with insults and inappropriate remarks as often happens in such circumstances. After he had been trained in these duties for a considerable time, his cloak and shoes wore out. He had been given these to wear at the persistent entreaty of the blessed Bishop Paul, because during the entire period before he entered the monastic life, he would walk about unshod. As I said, since his clothes and shoes had worn out and winter had arrived, he was now freezing from cold. Up to that point, the Abba had been putting off giving him the clothing necessary to cover his body. He did this in order to test him, to benefit the lazy, and to ensure a greater reward for Anthony. This is why his feet were chapped from walking on the marble and caused him much pain. Seeing how much Anthony was forcing himself and how much need he was in, the brothers felt sorry for him. And one threw him a skin, another gave him shoes to wear, which however the struggler refused to accept. Looking to the judgment of the abbot, he said to the brothers, I am aware that our father knows what things I am short of and of what I have need. I leave it to him then to provide me with them as God informs him for the sake of my humiliation. So, so far so good. He's, hold, he's holding on, but things are getting harder. Meanwhile, winter passed and summer followed spring and he still remained neglected. Overcome by the siege of his inner thoughts and his outer shortages, he went to his instructor, that is the abbot, and said to him, Master, if the monastery cannot provide me what I need, then let me satisfy my needs with the gifts of friends. So he breaks down and he goes to the abbot and says, you know, let me not burden the monastery, but let me have others, friends, give me what I need. Then this good pastor, having brought Anthony to the point he was aiming at, replied to him, my monastery with the help of Christ feeds the entire region. Will it not be capable of supplying you with clothing and shoes? Some time ago, I was informed that you are a struggler and endure physical ordeals, but now I do not see in you any of those things that I heard. You abandoned all that you had in this world out of love for God and subjected yourself to ascetic, ascetical labors and poverty. You lived well in the ascetical stillness of the desert for quite a number of years, enduring physical privations. But now that you have come to us, you have been faint-hearted and impatient in these small exercises. Are you asking for comforts 
as if you are one of the more careless brothers who do not look with assurance to the great recompense of Christ. Having humbled Anthony, the abbot let him go without giving him a chance to defend himself. So, harsh, but the abbot sees him as a struggler. And whenever this comes up in the Evercatinos, it's clear that the individual is above par, you know, or below, or above par in the sense of uh, pursuing the life of holiness, that there is this incredible desire for God and for the life of virtue. And so he's not treating him like the rest of the monks. He's treating him as one who came to the monastery with this burning desire within his heart to be perfected in obedience. And so that's exactly what he gives him. He knows his reputation and he does not though fall short in putting that virtue to the test in order to bring it to perfection. After this athlete of Christ, Anthony, had received such scathing criticisms, he continued to endure the afflictions that came from God uh, and with tear-filled eyes daily pursued inner purity in other ways by means of bodily continence. For he was permitted by the abbot to fast and struggle as he wished, lest he should appear that he had been removed from his previous way of life in the stillness of the desert. For this reason, he did not allow himself to sleep on a bed, but stretched out a little on a chair he built, slept for a very brief period, and woke up again before ringing the talaton. He prayed, read verses from the Psalter, and continually enjoyed the good things of the soul. Since the abbot and the brethren thought that Anthony had attained great patience, the monastery's farmers took him and gave him a hoe with the instruction that he root out and cut weeds down weeds and bushes. Drenched with sweat and worn out, he sighed to God from the depths of his heart, look upon my lowliness and my toil and forgive all my sins. One night in his sleep, he saw a distinguished and radiant man who was holding a set of scales. It appeared that all his sins from his youth had been placed in the left pan of this set of scales, and the other pan had been placed the hoe from his labors for God, which weighed down and wiped away all the forms of his sins. This distinguished man then addressed himself to Anthony, saying to him, Behold, God has accepted your labors and forgiven your sins. After a while, the abbot, having seen Anthony's long-lasting patience and seeing that he had been sufficiently tested by the arduous struggles of submission and that he had set his mind to endure magnanimously, for God's sake, whatever might be required of him, summoned him and said to him privately, Father, may God give you the reward for the souls that have benefited from your coming to our monastery and from your God-pleasing life. For never have my disciples been so greatly benefited as by your God-sent presence and perfect obedience. As he said these words, he took a cloak, shoes, and other similar articles of clothing from the wardrobe and offered them to Anthony. From that time on, he had whatever all the monks had, 
that is all of the items requisite for the physical, their physical, his physical needs. Indeed, as soon as the abbot perceived that he was lacking something, he would place it secretly at Anthony's bed. And when Anthony returned, he would find it. So, you know, we begin this hypothesis and we end the last one with this warning about not embracing the role and the monastic garb and then out of negligence not to pursue it and so become an impediment to others seeing their you know seeing one's laziness and then we are presented with the opposite that we see one who's pushed to the absolute limits of human endurance and obedience and what a profound impact that has not of being an impediment or a scandal or blaspheming uh, the you know, struggles of Christ, but the opposite, that his perfect obedience elevates the monastery and the witness of that obedience becomes then uh, something that edifies the entire monastery uh, beyond measure. And the, the abbot sees that. And so I think what I would want us to see through this, you know, again, it's, it's hard because it's so it's extreme uh, not to, to become overcome by that. But what I would want us to see in it is that there is, again, a perfecting of virtue that takes place, that we can never rest in the spiritual life on our natural virtues, but even the virtues that have come about by the grace of God in our life, that we are continually to be striving to conform ourselves to Christ and allow his grace to purify all that is sinful within us. And even those things of which we are unaware and to trust that this is taking place when we are undergoing trials in our life that are unexpected or that we feel that are beyond us or beyond our capacity to carry. And you know, this Anthony becomes this very powerful example because he was already a man of extraordinary holiness. And yet he's brought to this point where his inner thoughts betray him, where he wants to give up and where he wants to turn away from the very thing that he said in his heart that he desired the most. And for us, I think on a daily basis, it's maybe easier to see this, that so often we want to give up on God, we want to give up on the pursuit of virtue, of, of holding fast in faith, the moment that we begin to experience the trials and the difficulties of life. We feel that God has abandoned us, or that what we are enduring will not bear fruit for ourselves or for others. And so we want to turn away from it. And so again, you know, as we take up the ascetical life, we, we want Christ to be the beginning and the end point of it for us. It has to be the desire for him that leads us into it. But as we are engaged in it, he has to be the standard and the model for us. We keep our eyes fixed upon his humility, his obedience, his love. 
and that we abandon ourselves to his grace when our will and our strength fails us. And again, this is what's so powerful about the, the, the Desert Fathers. They present us with these images, but if we're patient enough to read them and listen to them, they draw us in this very powerful way to Christ and to the cross, to the redemptive power of that obedient and humble love. That it's not about these, you know, individualistic, private, uh, or, you know, self-centered, heroic actions, you know, of these men in the desert, you know, that it, it is all about Christ. And the moment that we lose sight of it, it, it loses meaning, plus we lose the capacity to live it in any case. And so we see even in this perfect man, from our perspective, this, this man who had really a kind of perfect virtue that in his weaker moments, he could turn, turn away from it. And so again, the, the, the warning is don't fall into conceit in your embrace of the Christian or the ascetic life, or if you're a monk and your embrace of the monastic life, but to always be striving forward in order to remain ever faithful to that commitment. And so for all of us, again, by you know, this universal call to holiness, that we are called, all of us, to the virtue of Christ, to embody that within, within the world, and to embody that then within any other vocation that we are called to in this life. And so if it's in married life, to make this manifest in it as well, that it becomes a witness to the world, a distinctive and unique Christian marriage, or even one might say a distinctive and unique Christian asceticism, that there are all people from all walks of life throughout the world who embrace ascetical life and every religion, you know, all the same kind of practices, but what, what makes the Christian asceticism distinct and unique? And that's what we are being shown in these writings, that they're all referred back to Christ and meant to conform us to him and, and draw us into communion with him. Any comments or final questions about the text? It's a lot, and uh, uh, certainly a lot to chew on. It was a long story to reflect upon, but you know, I hope it's something that we can take hold of as we move through this hypothesis, uh, because we're going to find similar images, not as long, of course, but of this call, again, to be conformed to Christ. Okay, so we'll close there for the evening. It's already past 8.30, believe it or not, that went by quickly and uh and so we'll pick up next week okay. so when we close as always with our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.